C.S. Lewis once famously framed the biblical revelation of Jesus against three choices we might make as to how we understand the person and work of Jesus. These are C.S. Lewis's three options on that. Jesus is either the Lord, exactly as this gospel claims, or he's a liar, having deceived everyone about that. Or he's a complete lunatic. He himself was deceived as to who he really was. Matthew's Gospel only really allows for one of those three options. Because the Jesus captured in this Gospel of Matthew has been exceptionally clear and composed from start to end. He's the very picture of sanity in what is otherwise a mess. And Jesus had power too, didn't he, that a lunatic doesn't have. Do you recall that he healed everyone of every illness back in chapter 4? I mean, even after just this short series we're exploring, it's quite hard to entertain the idea that Jesus was a lunatic. Anyone else in the narrative may be, but not Jesus. And everything Jesus said and did along the way aligns with the word of God in Scripture, doesn't it? We've seen that too, haven't we? And in the process, Jesus clashed with the deceitful one, the the devil. Uh, He clashed with the devil and he cast out the devil's demons, as we saw in chapter 4. Jesus is not the liar deceiving us. He opposed the liar. There's only really one option, according to this gospel. Jesus is Lord. Recent thinkers have actually extended Lewis's original three options to four. (laughs) The gospel account itself is completely untrue. I mean, the disciples just made all this stuff up. That's another option. And as we finish our series, uh, coming to the final section of Matthew's gospel today, I think we might actually give that one some airtime. And we would have then in front of us what I think are really the only two plausible responses to the Jesus presented in this gospel. Either either the whole thing is a hoax, a fraud, a scam, it's, it's just been written in deceit to fool us. Or all of this happened and Jesus is the Lord that this gospel proclaims. And certainly, as we now come to the pointy end of Matthew's Gospel and the, and the matter of Jesus' resurrection, it's crunch time on that. I mean, we've, we've got to respond to Jesus, and specifically about this empty tomb here in chapter 28. We, we must respond along, I think, one of those two options. Either we've all been deceived, or Jesus has risen as he said he would. The religious leaders give shape to that first response, the resurrection of Jesus as a deceit. Read it with me from chapter 27 and verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. These men know very clearly what Jesus had prophesied about his own resurrection. They've rejected Jesus as a liar, without even waiting to find out about this. He's a deceiver. He's an imposter. Therefore, they said, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, 
You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And that's the first option of how we can respond to to Jesus' resurrection. The religious leaders, of all people, it's the religious leaders that draft that response up for us. Such a thing cannot happen, this response says. So, So make sure nobody tries to deceive you otherwise. And the best explanation in support of that first view to the cold reality of the empty tomb that follows is that very thing that these leaders have taken charge of here to prevent. The disciples did steal Jesus' body. That's the best possible workaround that they can come up with. If we drop down to chapter 28 and verse 11, while the women were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. We notice in passing through that narrative that 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 as completely embarrassing as that would have been for the religious leaders of the nation, you know, failing on the one thing that they had appealed to Pilate to be allowed to do and make sure of to prevent such deceit, well, at least it was plausible, wasn't it? It's a plausible explanation for the empty tomb. But we'd have to imagine that if there was any other plausible alternative that, that wouldn't have made these leaders look so foolish and incompetent, then surely they would have pitched that explanation instead. But they took counsel on this, verse 12, and that's the best they could come up with in their collective wisdom. More modern ideas like the swoon theory wouldn't have even been floated in that council room. It's just absurd. It is impossible that Jesus somehow had only fainted instead of dying on the cross, let alone, of course, that he would then somehow be able to get out of the tomb in such a state. <laughs> Crucifixion is designed to kill. Slowly but surely, kill. And a whole battalion of Roman soldiers, we, we read in chapter 27 and verse 27, a whole battalion of Roman soldiers and their centurion would not have failed their duty to the governor to ensure that death. Jesus, these Gospels tell us, had been beaten twice. He had been whipped in the head with a reed, where a crown of thorns had no doubt punctured his head as well. Uh, He had been scourged by Pilate's officers. Scourged, that is, flogged with a cat of tails embedded with sharp fragments of bone and metal, designed, of course, to tear chunks of flesh out with every stroke. And then, of course, he'd been crucified with nails through the hands and feet, hung on a cross and left in agony to slowly suffocate to death as his own body weight squeezed his lungs empty as his strength failed. And for good measure, pierced through with a Roman spear, up under the ribcage through those empty lifeless lungs and into his heart, pierced in the heart to drain his blood out onto the ground. 
Only when the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, had confirmation from the centurion of Jesus' death did he hand his body over to be taken into that tomb. Jesus was dead. He was buried dead. There's all kinds of other wild ideas too floating around out there trying to explain away Jesus' death and resurrection. From, from mass hysteria to mistaken identity. But they're all just as hopeless. There really are only these two options to explain away that empty tomb. And Matthew gave them to us right here in Scripture. Either his body was taken by the disciples to perpetuate his deceit, or he was raised, as he said. The religious leaders are willing to look like fools to convince us of that first option. Despite the fact, we notice, that the best explanation that they can table can't actually even be proven. Think about it. Who, who, Who can be sure of what actually happened if the guards were really sleeping? And yet that's the explanation that the leaders have to push. Because there's nothing else. Despite, of course, their own guards telling them what they had actually seen. If the narrative can be trusted, that is, look at verse 2. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him... The guards trembled and became like dead men. If Matthew's account is right, and we might imagine it would have taken a very sufficient sum of money, verse 12, to silence those guards and to have them perpetuate a lie after what they've experienced. These are the things of God that they are dismissing. And so too the religious leaders but such is their determination to prove Jesus' deceit. The leaders and the guards must pursue their own deceit. Unless, of course, the disciples really did steal the body and made all this other stuff up about angels and earthquakes and and leaders plotting and paying off the guards and deceiving everybody. (laughs) We don't need some uh, trendy internet cynic today to suggest the idea to us that Jesus' body was, you know, stolen by the disciples and we've all been hoodwinked by their deceit. Matthew put that on the table for us way back on day one. Or day minus one, as it happens in verse 62. Either the religious leaders in their guards have tried to deceive us, as Matthew says, or Jesus and his disciples have. Those are the only two real alternatives for that empty tomb. So the flip side is that if the disciples didn't steal the body, then this narrative all rings true. Jesus didn't deceive anyone. And what he prophesied about his own death and resurrection came true. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, 
He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them. Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, verse 16, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's what Matthew's Gospel claims. Jesus has risen, just as he had said he would. He is not the deceiver in all this. Everything he said is trustworthy and true, and it's ours to obey. From the lips of his opponents, chapter 27 and verse 63, from the lips of his opponents, he said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. And so the resurrection in this gospel validates that Jesus' words are trustworthy. And so the reason he said he must die, we can also take as true and trustworthy. As a ransom for our sins, he died. To propitiate the wrath of God that we deserve, he died. And therefore we can also know that we have forgiveness of our sins in Jesus' name, just as he said. And life forevermore with him as our king in his kingdom. We note, because Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus wants to be at the very centre of our lives. He's either trying to displace the true God or he is the true God. Matthew's not putting any lesser decision point in front of us than that. And nor are the other disciples in the rest of this New Testament. So there are two choices everyone needs to wrestle with. 
Some will choose one way. Some will choose the other way. Matthew has sketched out the alternatives in front of us from the very beginning of this. I can't make you choose one way over the other. Nobody can. But one way or the other, there's an empty tomb. There's an empty tomb and either Matthew has documented here how that came to be or he made it up in pure deceit and it's the other story going around the Jews, verse 15, that is the true one. Either Jesus has risen just as he said and just as Matthew claims or his disciples stole his body. There isn't really a third option on that empty tomb. And you must decide, if you have any interest at all in the idea and the hope of life after death, you must decide because nothing like this has ever happened. Nobody could ever be more dead than Jesus was. And so if Jesus really did rise again, then our whole existence and and everything we do with our whole existence has just been changed, irreversibly and incomprehensibly changed in the most, the most meaningful way that we could ever conceive of with this epic news of this resurrection. There is life after death. Most of the Jews, of course, had always believed in that hope. Whether they knew it would be a bodily resurrection like we see here is hard to say, but resurrection had been written into their scriptures long ago. And in Jesus, in this gospel, they are face to face with it. They are seeing it. They are holding it. And their lives are changed forever. What they'd only ever read about and hoped in, they could now see and know as certain. If the disciples stole Jesus' body, then we've all been deceived. And that deceit has sucked in more people than any other religious movement in history. And it only continues to spread across the earth and to each generation, and it is dooming everyone in its path. But if Jesus has risen, everything changes. Everything changes and everything is now being made new for Jesus. The disciples began this commission and Jesus began to build his church to this very day until he says when, because he is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew finishes his gospel by putting those two possible responses squarely in front of us. And we should probably concede that by far the most rational explanation is actually that the tomb was empty by way of that deceit that the Jews spoke of there, that the disciples really did just steal the body and make the rest of this up. To our rational human mind, that is hands down the easiest choice. Because the alternative is just simply beyond us. It is beyond our known and lived experience. It is without precedent. It is without subsequent. It stands as a tremendous, I would say, an insurmountable obstacle to the rational human mind. 
And yet it's the only alternative that can explain the disciples' next actions after this, in in lives that were given and given up for this commission that here Jesus now gives them. It's the only alternative too, I would say, that can really do justice to to the actual state of affairs today. Jesus' commission continues to unfold as countless rational people continue for some reason to put their faith in this inexplicable claim. Jesus' kingdom, look around you. Jesus' kingdom only grows and grows with every passing day. And, you know, it's entirely irrational to think that a simple deception could have been that good and strong and clever to still be growing and growing more than ever every day. But if we put aside that next chapter, of course, you know, of what the disciples did next, and we ignore the flow of history up to this day, and we just focus instead just on Matthew's gospel text right here, then I say, by far the easiest way for our rational minds to take this empty tomb is is actually as the Jews say here. Matthew's explained that view and argues against it with what he is claiming to be the truth. But nevertheless, he's, he's therefore put that option in front of us, hasn't he? And it's plausible, isn't it? It's plausible enough to find easy agreement straight away with the Romans and the Jews at the time. And it's plausible enough to find agreement with the ordinary, rational human mind ever since. It's actually what Matthew counters that with. This gospel, this gospel, that's the harder version to believe. As it involves earthquakes and angels and prophecies fulfilled and guards paralyzed with fear and and Jesus rising from the dead. Just as he said. I mean, we'd like to think that the easier choice, the rational choice, would would be the obviously true one. But Matthew's calling us the other way. He has risen. Just as he said. So as we finish up this series, where we're looking at the Christ... I leave you with that gospel choice that Matthew, that's what Matthew lands on here, isn't it? And whichever view you do take, I hope you've enjoyed the series. If you do see things as the Jews see things here, then I leave you with this challenge. Read through the rest of this gospel according to Matthew. We've only looked at the bookends, the beginning and the end of this gospel account. So so my challenge is that you go and you, you read it right through. Read it right through and, and then see what you think. Read it and be amazed as you go at, at the irrational things that it claims all the way through. And wonder why so many believe. Read it cynically. Read it cynically and ask the question, you know, why does Matthew flag a more conceivable option here at the end, and instead ask you to take such a tremendous step of faith into the unimaginable. Wrestle with these two choices that Matthew is putting before you here in this Gospel. If you'd like some support with that, by the way, you know, some prayer maybe, or, or some questions and answers that you have, or, or someone just to, to read with you, then, then know that the Church is here. Of course. Know too that we will want to persuade you on on what Matthew claims to be true. 
But know too that we cannot make your heart believe. We cannot make your heart believe. And yet we can lift you up in prayer to the only one who can. And we can chat with you along the road, of course, in the meantime. If you have come to believe this gospel, then I leave you with this comfort. A comfort. Your faith in this gospel is of God. No person could have convinced you, nor you yourself, that this person, Jesus, who, whom you've never seen, nearly 2,000 years ago and on the other side of this planet, died for your sins and was raised again to life and has seen to it through an ongoing mission that you become his disciple. Surely that is a work of the Spirit of God in you, if you do believe. These kind of things of God cannot be understood by the Spirit of the world, but only by the Spirit of God. So take hold of your faith and rejoice, because if Jesus is raised, just as he said, then, then all that he promised is just as he said, and it is for you whom he has brought to belief. I tell you, by the word of God, this is the truth. Jesus is the Son of God, one with Father and Spirit. He reveals God as Trinity to us in this text and writes himself into that Trinity. He condescended to our form. Born of Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, he revealed the invisible God to us in the flesh. And he came with purpose to lay down his incarnate life for your sin. Forgiveness from God is yours in his name because of that death. And he has been raised victorious and vindicated and you will be too because you belong to him. If your heart believes this gospel, then all this is true for you. It might feel at times along the way like, you know, fear mixed with great joy as for these Marys in verse 8. You may have moments of doubt like even these disciples here in the face of such awesome news. But in the end, Jesus' words will prevail. And Jesus came and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Take heart in those brackets around his words there. All authority belongs to your Jesus and he is with you always. And now focus on the bit in the middle. Yeah? Be a disciple. Be a disciple of Jesus. Trust him. Follow him. Learn to obey him. And make 
other disciples of Jesus as you go, teaching them to obey him. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus told his disciples to make disciples. So making disciples is part of the task of being disciples. So disciples make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And here we are. We're going to be thinking about our place in that work in our next series. Please look forward to to what we're going to call Gospel and Life, a next series that we hope to start next week, where we're going to explore the call to the church in the letter to the Colossians. But for now, let me close this series in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this scripture, for this gospel according to Matthew, and for the gospel it proclaims that Jesus died for our sins, was raised to life, and has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. We pray that you would let that gospel truly have its way with our hearts. Let your Holy Spirit bring us to faith and and strengthen us in that faith. Teach us to trust Jesus and obey Jesus. Let us feel Jesus with us until the end of this age and into the next. In Jesus' name we pray. Let it be so.